One of the most effective tools of Satan has used uh, down through the years, down through the thousands of years really, is to try to keep people from a relationship with the living God. It's always against a dead religion. He's gone up against that constantly. When our Lord was here on the earth, His main battles really weren't the unbelievers. It was really the religious people. Uh, his main conflicts are the religious leaders and, and the crowds that are stuck on their traditions. Satan has been a counterfeiter. He's smuggled people in to the church since day one. He keeps others from having a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ, a heart-transforming experience. So it's, it's that battle, it's that struggle. It's constant with what Satan brings up against what true Christianity is. I think one of the best descriptions of a dead religion came from Christ when He confronted the Pharisees in Mark chapter 7, 6-9. through He said, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, the people honor Me with their lips, but their heart is far away from Me. But in vain do they worship Me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And then in Isaiah 29.13, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the traditions of men. Man-made religions. Traditions. This is what Isaiah attacked throughout the Old Testament. It's what Jesus attacked whenever He was teaching and preaching the Gospel of the Kingdom. Okay, in context, where is Jesus at? Well, we don't know for sure the occasion uh, of this text here, but we do know He's heading somewhere. He's heading towards Jerusalem. He's heading towards the cross. He's heading there to die, to die for us. And so He has been giving warnings all the time that as He marches towards that cross. In spite of the warnings, the people don't get it as a whole. He, he told him in, uh, in an earlier text that uh, at the end of chapter 12, probably the same people that he's talking with here, you can read the weather. You know what's going to be coming. You know you can look up, look to the east, south, or whatever, and you can see that there's going to be rain or it's going to be a sunshiny day. You can read that. But you miss the signs of the times that God, the living God, in their midst. And they missed it. So he gave that analogy there. There was another one that where as they oppose him, you know, and he says, if you don't bear fruit soon, then the owner of the vineyard is going to cut it down. That's pretty uh, harsh. That's what we finished up with last week. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. Now, the nation as a whole did not trust in the Messiah, Christ, as He stood there in their midst most of the time. Most of them did not really trust in Him. So, that's the problem. They missed it. Uh, we know that His own 
received him not, it says in John 1. There were really only a few that did. But in this text here, of he's had opposition and opposition. He's got opposition here as we look at this today, but God is powerfully at work. He's working right now. You know, but that time he's working. He was establishing and building up the kingdom of God. And there's a lady here that is going to be added to the kingdom of God. One who you at least expect to be in the kingdom. You would think he would be this synagogue official. It is not him. It's her. So we're going to have seven contrasts in, in this today between dead religion and reality with the living Lord. That's the opposition that's up against Christianity and we'll look at seven of those. We start off, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Uh, get in the word synagogue, it's synagogue, it means to gather together. That's all it is. It's a gathering. Uh, the setting here is this synagogue, and we uh, run into this quite frequently in Jesus' ministry. Uh, the synagogue is different from the temple. The temple is in Jerusalem. There's only one temple. That's where people would go for... Uh, if you didn't live around Jerusalem or really close to it, you'd go to synagogue. But on uh, certain feasts, like Passover, Unleavened Bread... Pentecost and some of the other ones, if they could, they would go to there. And there were certain requirements of uh, certain feasts that they were all to go there, or at least the the men. And so, the synagogue is a real important place to the people of Israel. That's where they would meet together. And the synagogue came together uh, really in about uh, the time of the deportation that Babylon did to Israel, back to Babylon. They conquered them in somewhere around 600 B.C. And now they didn't have a temple. It was destroyed. Jerusalem was destroyed. And the people say, you know, how are we going to worship? So they had little gathering places where they would come together. A gathering. Sunagoge. That's the idea. When they finally returned to the homeland, after 70 years... They didn't have a temple, and of course they started building that up, but they also will have synagogues that are spread out all over Israel where everybody can meet on the Sabbath. The synagogue was a great place. It was the town hall. It was where everybody met for anything and everything, and school and what have you. Uh, As long as you had ten Jewish men, you could start a synagogue. So that's where the police, uh, the people would come together. Jesus made it a practice to go to synagogue on the Sabbaths. That's where he would go if he would be away from Jerusalem, which was most of the time. He's out ministering in Galilee, sometimes in Judea. But he's teaching. That's what he does. Everybody knows that he's the great teacher. Most don't know that he is really God, that he's the Messiah. Luke has repeatedly emphasized throughout his writings that Jesus taught. He came here, we know, to die for our sins. But he came here 
to preach and teach the gospel of the kingdom of God. Repent, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? That's his message. The gospel of the kingdom of God. So he taught and he taught. Let's just trace through Luke just for a few moments here and look to see how important the teaching of Jesus is. Now he taught everywhere. He taught on the hillsides out in the country. He, he would teach along the Sea of Galilee and he taught frequently in synagogues. Luke picks up on that a lot. In 4.16, Jesus is in his hometown of Nazareth. In 16 it says, It came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. They recognized that he had been doing ministry. So they asked him to do the reading the teaching that day. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book, found the place where it was written. And of course, there he says, this is it. I'm the one that Isaiah prophesied about. This is it. And, you know, he, he must have talked about what he had just read. And he says, the scripture has been fulfilled. People were speaking well of him. What a teacher, what a speaker. Go to chapter 4, verse 31. 32, came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. Oh, by the way, just before he went to Capernaum, you know what happened? After they were amazed by his teaching, he said some things they didn't like. They got convicted. And what did they try to do? They tried to kill him. He said his hometown. And they went out to drop him off the, the hill, the brow of the hill. In order to throw it off the cliff, he just passed from amongst them and went to Capernaum. Uh, it's amazing, isn't it? Well, really what he was, he started talking about God's choosing people, people that were not necessarily Jews, like Gentile women. Oh, that made them mad. And so that was the reason. So he goes to another synagogue. And he was teaching them on the Sabbath. Well, where would he be teaching? Probably in the synagogue. And they were amazed at his teaching for his message was with authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by the Spirit. We, you know, again, we've gone over that. But teaching in the synagogue. How about verse 43? Same, same chapter. And he said to them, now he's in a secluded uh, Secluded place, they, they find him. He said, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. One can say, Well, you know what? It, doesn't it get a little old to teach and preach? I mean, after all, we've heard all that. Why is there teaching and preaching? Why do we have to listen to that? Why do we have to go to church? You know, some people would ask. This is how the message of the gospel gets to us. And it never gets old. And by the way, we learn more the next time. And the next time, it's precept upon precept, right? And you may not ever even remember what the sermon was about last week. That's alright, but you know what? In that mind, 
goes the teaching of the Word of God and it's building and building. If you've been doing it for years, you probably couldn't quote too much out of what I have said or any other preacher has said. But the Word of God is there. And so those principles are there. And you might even know you know, the Scripture, but it has to be taught. It was designed to be taught. Always was through the Old Testament. Jesus, then the apostles, and the rest of the church. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Teaching is so key. Word of God. Chapter 5, verse 17. Luke really brought it forth throughout his writing. 5.17 One day he was teaching. Really? Yeah. And there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. So he was teaching and he was healing. Galilee, Judea, all the leaders, Pharisees coming out to see Jesus and to hear Him teach. No teacher like Him was there. Chapter 6, verse 6. On another Sabbath, He entered the synagogue and was teaching. And there was a man there with a right hand withered. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. He's going to get in trouble again. Sabbath, synagogue, healing. Okay. Chapter 6, verse 17. Jesus came down with them, stood on a level place. He's outside the synagogue. There was a large crowd of His disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear Him and be healed by their diseases. So He heals them. Teaches, He heals. Backs it up. Chapter 8, verse 1. We spent a lot of time on this issue. It's because teaching of the Word of God is one of the most important things that can be done and listened to and then actually do it. Uh, to, to, to do what the Word is, right? That That's one of the most important things for us as we get taught by Holy Spirit. Soon afterwards, He began going around from one city and village to another proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. Twelve were with Him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. So again, preaching, proclaiming the kingdom of God. Chapter 9, verse 11. But the crowds were aware of this and followed Him and welcoming them, He began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. That's our Lord. That's what He did. Must have been wonderful to hear the words of Christ being taught. Nobody had ever proclaimed the Word of God like Him. And nobody ever will. He is the Word. He's the most gifted teacher that this world has ever heard. But yet there are hardened hearts that reject the message of the greatest teacher ever. They're in opposition to Him. Now this is the last time that Luke will record 
Jesus teaching in a synagogue. Now, I'm not saying this was the last time chronologically. Luke doesn't mention anymore. Why do I say that? Well, did you see all the verses that we dealt with? Many of those were dealing with the synagogue. He's not going to do that. Luke is not going to report that anymore. There was a window of opportunity that people had. Just wide as could be. It's narrowing. It's narrowing. It's really narrow now. And that's what Luke is presenting here as as we check this out. But we do see an object of His grace here in this text. It's a hunchbacked woman at the synagogue and we see the power that Christ has to transform a life physically, spiritually. Power that Christ has. So conflict is going to come comes in his teaching because Israel was apostate at this time. God comes to earth to apostate group of people that he had chosen to represent him. They substituted their legalistic man-made system of self-righteousness and Christ comes to confront it. If you've been paying attention to Luke all the way that we've been through, he has confronted week after week that we deal with here. He has confronted this false legalistic system. The religious leaders and the crowd who continue to follow that way. Of course, the opposition is really mounting up against him at this time. This is why they finally will kill him He exposed their false theology. They didn't have an answer for it. So, the the issue is the Sabbath. Healing on the Sabbath. Get into that a little bit more, but really the Sabbath was made for man. God really gave us this a particular day for rest. And to really think about Him. To be with His people special day. It's a good thing. He didn't lay down a bunch of rules and laws and things that they couldn't do. Where did those come from? They didn't come from God. 613 rules they made up. Things that you couldn't do on the Sabbath. Anyway, it's dealing with a hunchbacked woman. said there was a woman for 18 years, had a sickness caused by a spirit. She was bent double. Couldn't straighten up at all. So, she comes into the synagogue, took her place where she probably usually did. She was probably from that town all of her life. Been in the synagogue every Sabbath. Probably sits in the very back Perhaps you know, people know her very well. Um, we, as far as her problem is concerned, it's not necessarily related to any particular sin. It's not mentioned there. Um, think of the excuses that she could have had for not being there. Um, she's disfigured by this hunched back that she had. She had to be self-conscious about it. 
no matter how long she's had it. She's in constant pain, always. That would distract you from worship, wouldn't it? It was difficult to walk the distance to the synagogue. She could have used all that as an excuse, but two, she couldn't look forward. She's bent over. She's doubled up like this. Maybe she could take her head and kind of look like that for a little bit. It's probably worse than that. Although, can you think of anything worse than an old guy standing up front here hunching his back, looking, stooping down like that? Anyway, that is the kind of condition that she's in. You can feel for her. This is real. This is not just a Bible story. It's real. Bible stories are real. She came to the synagogue to worship God. Matter of fact, Jesus calls her um, a daughter of... um, Where's it at? Abraham. Maybe I'm thinking of something. Yeah. Verse 16, she's the daughter of Abraham. I'm trying to remember where that was at. 18 years. Why did God wait so long to heal her? Well, some would say this is the first time she's ever seen Jesus, or maybe she didn't see him, he saw her. Uh, we don't know why God waited that long. Actually, I think we do. Perhaps it's sim- simply because God is glorified in the cure of this. If we look in John chapter 9, verse 3, there was a man born blind. Birth, he had this condition that he could not see. It says 9.3. Verse 2, actually, uh, the disciples ask, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? It must be because of his sin. Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Man born blind, and God gives him sight after all these years. How about chapter 11, verse 4? Lazarus. Lazarus dies. When when Jesus heard this, He said the sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now, who was that concerning? Lazarus. He raised Lazarus. It gave glory to God, didn't it? Because nobody could deny that there was a resurrection. came back to life. What do you do with that? I'm sure some of the religious leaders would have liked to have killed Lazarus because in the next few months he was going to be walking around and they knew that he died. His funeral happened. He'd been dead three days. Glory to God, right? Well, this lady is sick by a spirit. The word is asthenia in the Greek and it means weakness. It means a sickness, it's a disease, an illness. It's it's this weakness here. 
She's in bondage to it because it was caused by a spirit. Most people look at her and thought it was a physical problem. I would have. She's got a bad physical problem. Jesus knows exactly what it is and where it came from. And not all sicknesses are caused by Satan, are they? In fact, most are not. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus knows what her condition really is. She was in bondage to this debilitating sickness, weakness. You know what? It's a picture of millions of people who attend worship on Sunday. They go there every week for year after year, but they live in a spiritual bondage to sin, to the prince of darkness. They can be very sincere people, but they're bent over under the weight of sin and guilt. The religious system, like Judaism here, tolerates bondage, probably shrugs it off or accepts it. This religious system cannot deliver her. That's the idea. Christ is the one who can deliver. What they need is, what people need is what happened with this woman who experienced this encounter with the living God. The living Lord Jesus Christ. That is the one who she needed. Well, there's the first one done. There's seven. I've got to pick it up. You ever notice that first one always takes the longest? Well, that sets it up, doesn't it? So, verse 12. When Jesus saw her, He called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And He laid His hand on her, and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. Jesus calls her to the front and center where He's at, where He's been teaching. And He makes her the focal point here. He probably uh, called her out of the shadows. Nobody has really paid uh, attention to her. Do you notice anything about her coming up to Jesus and asking if He could heal her? Not at all. Sometimes you see that. In this case, she's not expecting it. Maybe she's heard about Jesus. And maybe that would happen. But she doesn't initiate this. Jesus does. Ultimately, that's really why Jesus is there. He's the initiator. She didn't exactly exhibit any kind of faith. But Jesus is there. He notices she probably can't even look up at Him. Jesus notices the need. People, I guess, sometime, sometimes ignore the need of others and they're helpless to do anything about it, maybe. They can't do anything. If they do know what the need is, you've been that way when you, you'd like to help somebody out, but there's nothing you can do. You know. But at the same time, if we get an opportunity, we'd love to help people out. Jesus sees you and He wants the power of His Word to touch and heal your soul. He's the one that does that. That's a power that transforms, doesn't it? That's real contact with the living Lord. That's what she needed. And she gets it.
What religion had not been able to do for how many years? 18 years? Jesus did that quickly. He spoke to her, laid His hands on her, and she was instantly freed from the bondage and affliction that she was in. She stood upright for the first time. That head, everything's all bowed down, doubled over, and immediately she stands straight up Hasn't done it for 18 years. She just didn't go to a religious service that day. She had personal contact with the living Lord. Jesus may not come in here in the flesh, but He comes in the Spirit by the very Holy Spirit. and He can heal all those wounds says immediately, laying his hands upon her. She was made erect again. She's standing erect, and immediately she began what? Glorifying God. That is why we exist, isn't it? That's really why we exist. How could she not glorify God in this instance? How could she not? Go to the third one. Dead religion has no compassion. Christ is compassion. So verse uh, 14, but the synagogue official. Mm. Legalistic religion is harsh, it's brutal, it's merciless. It's loveless. It doesn't care about the soul. It may seem like it. They can seem and look like the most compassionate people in the world. You can name all the cults. Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons. They'll even come to your door and help you out. They seem so compassionate. Other false religious cults can do all of that. They make will take care of you. You know what? They don't care about you at all. They're trying to keep your soul from knowing personal Lord and Savior. Now, this man just saw a woman in his synagogue who needed mercy, needed compassion, tenderness, at least that he could have offered. He saw this woman. He was not kind whatsoever after all this is shown. He would have thought that he would joined right there at that time in the chorus of praise as she is glorifying God who knows what she's doing. She's standing up and she can be seen. Sing that song, you know, about how can I keep from singing, right? Whatever it was, you would have thought that he would have joined in. Look what just happened in our synagogue. We have the living Lord here and look how her life has changed physically. And now she's praising God in a way that she really never has. Boy, he was not tender-hearted at all, was he? He was mad. But Jesus is compassion. He's full of compassion. You know, you remember when he saw the multitudes, Matthew 9:36, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed. And listen to this. Downcast like sheep without a shepherd. 
when he was walking here on this earth, he gets rejected by so many people. But yet he sees people being led by false shepherds. Boy, there are a lot of them today. Eastern religions. Or the cults that identify themselves with Christianity, but they're further from the truth. And then even in some of the Orthodox churches who keep the Word of God from us today. Shame on them. They give you a few minutes of it with no depth. Nothing that you can grow on. And nobody cares. You just you come, then you go out, nobody cares. Nobody says they're praying for you. A nice little encouraging thought and go throughout the rest of the week. Jesus says that we are to be compassionate for people. Caring for them. He felt it. Sheep without a shepherd. All they need. Leading. They need this teaching. And, you know, the synagogue official, like every other man at that time, basically, had a very low view of women. And, you know, when you look at Christ, how many times does He spend time with women? I mean, as one is at His feet, worshiping Him, adoring who He is, how important, you know, the Messiah is. You see that all the way through. They ministered to Him all the way through His ministry. And so He showed concern again. He took the time to call her to Him and to deliver her from this illness. So are we to be compassionate? Yes. Because we are to be Christ-like. We are to put care in for people not callously doing it. And that's exactly what this man did. He says, but the synagogue official, indignant, indignant, anger. Sadly, many Christians are marked more by anger than they are with a heartfelt joy and compassion that Christ has. Matter of fact, Christ is joy, isn't he? Anger is a deed of the flesh. Galatians chapter five. But the fruit of the spirit in Galatians five twenty two is love, joy. Dead religion has no joy, does it? it really doesn't. No true joy. Because the fruit of the spirit is joy. Number five, dead religion is hypocritical. But Jesus is truth. Now, we've seen that the official is not concerned about the lady. And Jesus then says that you are hypocrites. And He's talking not only to the synagogue official, but many who are in the congregation. As he says in verse 15, But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites. They're hypocrites. The uh, synagogue official actually scolded the crowd too. Look at this. The synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, 
It's almost like he wants to really aim this at Jesus, but he hits the crowd. Because he doesn't want them to be glorifying. I think a lot of them are glorifying God here. He says there are six days in which work should be done. We have six days we can do that. So come during them and get healed and not on the Sabbath day. Where did he get that at? You're not going to find it anywhere except their writings, their traditions. So, you know, he's scolding the crowd. He pretended to be concerned about the people. They could come and get cured on any other day. Hey, it's good to have that. We got six out of the seven days we could do this. No, not today. He wasn't concerned about people. Somebody violated his rules. He's the official there. It's like a store owner one time that uh, I read, read about. He became so obsessed with keeping his shelves clean and looking really, really nice. Always wanted it to be neat. So he locked the doors in the store most of the day. Why did he do that? Well, to keep out customers because they would mess up his shelves. <laughs> He's a store. I think he forgot why he was in business. That's what the synagogue is for. It's to present the living Lord. And there he is. And he's just proven something. And he has become angry. The Sabbath is for man. Jesus is truth. And so he confronts the hypocrisy and says it. How many times does he call these people? You hypocrites. You actors. Jesus is not acting. He is the truth. And people were hypocrites. Jesus would call them hypocrites to their faces. Be careful though how we approach that. We are not Jesus. We want to be like Him. But we can probably use words that would be helpful in our trying to bring people into Christ and then let the Holy Spirit convict them of their sin. Right? So we have two more left. We're number six. We've moved right on, haven't we? Okay. This is interesting. Jesus makes a point that they can't argue with. You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham, as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond of the Sabbath day? Makes the point, and they're going, hmm. You know, he's got a point. I'm not so sure the synagogue official is saying that. But on the Sabbath, they felt free to untie the colt or ox or donkey or animals and you lead them to water. That is work. You can't work on the Sabbath, right? Of course, the lady has a mirror and she's not supposed to look at a mirror on the Sabbath because if she sees a mirror, she will look at herself and she might see a gray hair and pull it out. Use a tweezers or something. That's work. So therefore, you were not allowed to have a mirror because you would be tempted to work. You know, on and on, some of those laws are just, they're actually funny. 
so stupid. But, you know, here it is, he says, but your law says that you can give your animals water. What happens if you don't give them water? <laughs> Especially on a hot day in the Mideast. Oh. So dead religion always has mixed up priorities. They don't have the right priority of where things are to really go. What it does, it glories the people as they keep rules. They can measure their spirituality by doing things. If you have things that you have to do, then you can just check those off. And you're doing good as long as you outwardly do that. It's an outward conformity, isn't it? But inwardly it's not. It, it boasts in numbers. But there can be sin in the camp. doesn't matter. Jesus' way is love God and love your neighbors. Right? So He had the right priority always, constantly. We go into the seventh one. Dead religion glorifies man. Jesus is about being glorified. Well, dead religion glories in the outward things, conformity. Galatians 6.13 says, They desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. That means when, they, when you've done something, now you're, you're real, you're true. You've got to get circumcised. <clears throat> Builds up the numbers too. We had this many circumcised this past month. Or, we, you know, you'd hear all these reports about churches are doing fantastic. We had 100 people baptized this last year. Yeah, that's good. But, you know, are, are they moving on in the Lord? Is it just about baptism, right? It's just about circumcision. Of course, they viewed their circumcision as the most important thing. So it's about their glory. That's what all false religions are. There's it's no glory whatsoever about God. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him while you're at it. If you're just glorifying Him, I've got to glorify Him. Well, what is that, right? Your life is glory to God. When you're content with God, right? When we're most satisfied with Him. Satisfied with Him. That gives glory to God. We're content, no matter the circumstances. That is probably the most glory that He can get from your life. If you're satisfied with Jesus Christ in your life and wherever you're at in your life, God in His providence is using it all. I'm satisfied. I'm content. What's the goal of Jesus' ministry? To glorify God. She glorified God. In verse 13, we saw that. He laid hands on her and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. And then we see in verse 17, as he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated as he just gave them the example of uh, untying the ox and the donkey from the stall and leading them to the water. 
And uh, here it is. What are they going to do? What are they going to say? Humiliated. But the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by Him. By His teaching that day, by that healing of this hunchback woman. You know what? Those who have been saved, they know it's totally by God's grace. You look here, this woman, 18 years, she knew that there was nobody going to be helping her. No physician, no kind of medicine, no synagogue officials coming to worship on the Sabbath. None of that was going to do anything. So, she sees this, she knows it's only by God's grace that it happened. That's the way it is with a true Christian. We can't add one little iota to what God has already done. It's not 99% plus 1%, is it? Absolutely 100%. And that's what He did here as He called the woman to Him. Beautiful picture of what saving grace is. Matthew Henry said, when crooked souls are made straight, they will show it by their glorifying God. So she had a crooked back. We have crooked souls until Christ comes into our life. And we give Him all the glory, don't we? In um, Psalm 65, 4, the psalmist there is praising God. He says this, How blessed is the one whom you choose, Lord, and bring near to you. Do you guys catch that? Boy, that's out of the Psalms. How blessed is the one whom you, God, whom you choose, whom you elect, and bring near to you to dwell, to live in your courts. People feel real comfortable with dead religion. You want to know why? Because it doesn't confront the flesh. Christ confronted them and either they hated Him or they glorified Him. That's what happened at the synagogue. There were many who were humiliated, but we see an entire crowd rejoicing for all the glories of Christ there. Actually, the dead religion feeds the flesh. Just keeps feeding it. Whether it be that you do things that look sinful or things that look really spiritual, both of those can feed the flesh if it's just outward. But Jesus always confronts the soul and he hits us on the matter of pride. About me, myself. Selfishness. That's what he does. That's really what it came down to here. This man is a picture of selfishness. This is like his synagogue. These are my rules. These are Jewish rules. And yet, we see that 
sinful pride had been confronted. And it'll either make people respond in being mad or they will be humbled and desire to keep being changed by God. That's the goal because what that does is it glorifies God. When He convicts us, we repent, we confess, Jesus is glorified. So Luke concludes this story as we see the opponents are humiliated and the multitudes rejoicing. Last verse. Do you see what Jesus does whenever He comes into a place to teach synagogue out on the hillside, wherever the crowds are there, and He splits either people like Him and like His message and want to follow that, or they hate it. That's what He does when He comes. He divides. He's a dividing line as He confronts sin. You know, the miracle here that we see in this text isn't just recorded so that you know we can come to church and sit and say, well, you know, that's interesting. That's a really neat story. And then go home the same way that we are when we first came here. It's to convict us of the living Lord. Convicting us of desiring to know Him more. Convicting us of our own selfishness and pride and our sin. So the question always is, is which side am I on, right? Am I just going through the motions? Is this just some kind of dead religion that I'm involved with? Or is it knowing the living Lord and having the reality, the presence of Christ in our lives? Let's pray. Father, You are a holy, awesome God. Thank You for sending the person of Jesus Christ to this sinful earth. Coming to teach the kingdom of God and all of its benefits. Showing us that we don't need the things of the world and my selfishness and all the things that go with that. My flesh. But I need Christ. Thank You, Lord, for presenting Jesus Christ again in this text that we look at. The mercy, the compassion that we see of Jesus, the truth, the confrontations that He has with this legalism and false religion, dead religion, and what it is to live in the kingdom of God, which is to glorify the one true living God. We say this in Jesus' name. Amen.